Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Listener, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to episode number four of The Pursuit Pod. I'm Lauren Wood, an Aussie performer living abroad, and this is where I chat with fellow creatives who have travelled the world in their pursuit of career fulfilment. This podcast has become a way for me to connect and stay in tune with the performing arts industry at a time when it has been severely affected by the coronavirus and whilst regularly wondering when my life as a performer might be anywhere close to normal again. And the show that started just over a month ago as a hair-brained passion project has now been listened to over 100 times across multiple different countries, which I know in the realm of podcasting is only a tiny drop in the ocean, but it's my drop. And I'm so bloody proud and grateful to all my listeners that have tuned in. So thank you so, so much. The stories I get to play a part in sharing here on the pod leave me so inspired and are a constant reminder to me of just how unique and exciting our industry can be. And today's episode, folks, is no exception. In fact, today's guest, the incredibly talented musical director Matthew Samer, has led a career in Australia and now in the UK that any creative would aspire to. Working his way up the ranks as an accompanist, assistant and associate musical director has taken Matt touring in productions around the UK as well as landing roles in highly acclaimed fringe and West End shows, sometimes even working in multiple big name performances at once. His story is an absolute must listen for any aspiring musical directors out there and a fabulous example of how hard work and just simply saying yes to things can lead you from one opportunity to the next. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome! Welcome, Matt, to the podcast. Thank you. (laughs) It's so nice to have you on, Matt. I'm so excited to have you on this series, uh, especially so early on when, uh, so far, the only interviews I've gotten to have have been either with my husband from the front room or with fellow performers who are pursuing similar sort of stuff to me, but... Your story's quite unique in that uh, you're not an on-stage performer as such, but you have been pursuing the career of a musical director. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, you're from Brisbane, first and foremost. Uh, how long have you been over here in London? Uh, I arrived end of 2015. So what is that? Nearly six years in September, I think. Yep. Wow. I know. Gosh, has that gone... Six years? It doesn't feel like six years ago when we last saw you back home. I know. I mean, time flies when you're uh, living the life in London. I mean, it certainly does fly. It keeps you a bit more amused, that's for sure. The years have been passing a bit quicker for me, I think. (laughs) I mean, I'm lucky. I've been quite busy since I've been here, so I feel like um, it's all... And I think when you get into your... uh mid-30s, your your life seems to pass at a very quick rate, doesn't it? I I don't know... (laughs) Especially when you get 12 months at a time that are just spent on quarantine or lockdown. Exactly. Or... I remember when I was younger, from home. life seemed to go by slowly. But as you get older, it just passes by at crazy rate. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, six years ago, what what happened six years ago or leading up to that moment when you left Brisbane? Yeah, I, I, I always kind of had envisaged for myself living overseas it was something that I was always desperate to do and always knew I would do um I mean in 2015 I probably would have been about 28 you know so I was quite Mm -hmm. late 20s I think most people when they kind of dream about moving overseas they go over quite young um for me it was it was I was kind of like I refuse to move overseas 
not be ready, fail, and then have to come home. That would have been really disappointing for me. So I was like, I'm going to take my time, really build my skills, make sure that I'm very confident in what I have to offer. And then when the time is right, I will go. And for me, it was always a decision between London and New York. Obviously, working in musical theatre, they are the, <laughs> the dream locations. And London was where mm. I ended up. And was that for any particular reason with accessibility? Do you have any heritage from this side I of the world? I actually have none. Um, the, the ridiculous thing is my dad's American and I hold a US passport. So I easily could have gone to New York. Why do you ask that I came into London? I mean, I had a few things that were pointing me in this direction. I remember me and my uh, friend who I live with now from Brisbane, Jackie, we visited London in 2007 and we just had such a good time in in seeing shows in the West End and that kind of made an impression. And then I was working in Brisbane at the uh, the musical theatre course that you uh, studied at, uh, at the Queensland Conservatorium um, with Paul Saby. And obviously he came over from London um, in 2010, 2011. So I started working there and um, as a, you know, in-house kind of MD. And Obviously, he had lots of UK connections, so he was like, if you go, I can offer you some uh, some networking opportunities. And then um, in 2015, I did Blood Brothers, the third year show there, and a director called Ian Good came over from London to direct it, and I was his MD on that show. And we really hit it off, and he was, again, saying, if you come over, I'll be able to get you some connections, introduce you to people. So it just felt like I'd already had some some uh some signs pointing me to london it's scary moving overseas as you know and and trying to figure out what you're going to do for work so knowing that i already had some connections to fall back on made it feel good and safer also my uh two best friends kieran and jackie from brisbane had already moved over to london so it was like kind of going where my family was already so that's kind of what prompted me yeah i've um i found it an absolute godsend moving with friends and and share housing again back over here it sounds like you've had a similar experience with kieran yeah, and jackie it's, it really makes a big difference when you move to a, a new city and you have uh people that you can uh call friends uh living with you and just people who you could relate to on a cultural level like i think i've not i've not been to new york or america at all but something I've found here with England is that there's just enough of a cultural difference to remind you that you're not at home, but it's also still, there's actually a lot of similarities. Can I, I think about it so much because I, the more I live here and the more I work with British people, the more I just fall in love with them because they are, they are laid back like Australians. And um, as you say, there's enough of a cultural difference to make it um, exciting, but I think we're very similar. And, you know, I've worked with some Americans you know, some great people. Um, and it's just so interesting, the difference in personality and attitude and approach. And I find the American way very full on and quite overbearing. Um, and I think, you know, even though I've had the opportunity to consider, do I want to stay in London? Do I want to go to New York? I, I always feel that London is my home and where I want to be. So, yeah. And definitely when you've just spent so much money and effort and time in establishing right. yourself in a new place, I... I I myself am definitely getting the sense that I want to be here for a good few years now. Otherwise, like three years in, I still feel so new. I still feel like there's so much that I am yet to establish and explore. It, it takes, takes time. time and I feel country. so lucky that I've been able to stay for nearly six years and hopefully I can stay for as long as I like. Um, I feel so bad for fellow performers or friends that have had that two-year working visa and they have to leave once they've just started getting things going. It's it's devastating. Yeah. And so that's a good tangent to follow then. How did you get over here visa-wise? <laughs> what visa were you on or did you have work? I mean, I, um, I came over on the youth mobility visa, which um, I think most of us do, which is the... Um, if you're under 31, you can come and work and live in the UK for two years. Um, I was yeah. super lucky because my partner at the time was a dual British Australian citizen. And we'd already been in a de facto relationship for two years. You similar? <laughs> we, yeah, <laughs> we'd been in a de facto relationship. Put a <laughs> ring on it, baby. <laughs> the good thing about um, Australia and, and UK is you don't have to be married to um, for that to count. As long as you've been living in a relationship for two years, that counts. So, uh, you know, me and Ethan were over here. And after two, my two-year um, youth mobility visa, I went on to a partner visa for two and a half years. And then I renewed that because we were still together. We'd be living together. So I renewed that for another two and a half years. So actually, it's 
you know, when that's up, it will have been about seven and a half years. Annoyingly, if we were still together, unfortunately, we broke up. It's okay. We're still on good terms. We're friends. It's fine. Uh, annoyingly, if we were still together, I could have applied for permanent residency. But because we um, are not, I have to now get my years up to 10 before I can stay. So my only option really is to apply for the global talent visa. Um, so that is my next goal um, for next year. So fingers crossed. <laughs> which requires a lot of work from what I've heard from other people in sourcing reputable information and articles and proof yeah. that you are you are that exceptional talent it's a very yeah. um it's I know. restrictive <laughs> no title. I know it's, it's, it's a bit uh, it's intimidating. weird when you tell people what you're going for because I'll be like I'm going for the exceptional talent visa and I'm like it's okay I don't think I'm exceptionally talented it's just what they call it <laughs> <laughs> it's very it's very un-Australian to uh, speak so I know, but um, yeah, I know um, a few people that have gone for it and they've been successful. So it gives me hope that um, I'll be <laughs> suitable. Yeah, yeah. Wow, 10 years. I didn't realize that there was that difference because oh, I equally am on the spousal yeah. visa. I actually got denied for my spousal visa at first, which was a real kick in the teeth because Will and I had gotten married before we had gotten over, had had started the process of moving over here, thinking that that would help us because of Will's British heritage. But actually then when we went to apply for the spousal visa, they informed us that he had to be earning in pounds and have a fixed residence. And uh, yeah, basically he had to prove to the government that he was earning £18,000 yeah. a year and could support yeah. me as a spouse before. Yeah, so I, I forget about that actually. We had a quite a debacle with visas when we first took off. I think we lost a few hundred pounds yeah. actually in processing the wrong <laughs> things, but yeah, it's a bit of a pain. But uh, do you know, Matt, I actually wanted to go back a little bit further with you because we've worked oh. together like from time to time yes. in Brisbane. However, I didn't, I didn't know you way back when you first started your journey into getting into musical direction. What, what made you take that route as opposed to performing? Um, I always like I mean I started as a classical pianist and like very intensely at a very young okay. age so I was really I was traveling to Sydney um, at the Australian Institute of Music to have lessons with a top teacher you know when I turned 18 he presumed that I was going to go down that path but I, my heart was just never in it um, I always loved show tunes and musical theater and so when I kind of graduated high school at 18 I was like I'm not going to Sydney I'm not doing classical piano I want to get far away from it so I went to Brisbane uh -huh. oh sorry I did I said you were br from Brisbane but in fact so you were from Sydney and then moved up actually I'm from Coffs Harbour uh, oh there you go there you go which is right in the middle but um I you know so I consider Brisbane my home because I was there for about 12-15 years so so I moved up there and I did a Bachelor of Arts in drama and French you know no music whatsoever and I got involved with um, the local, well, the, the university theatre troupe Underground Productions, <laughs> which you'll know. Um, and, you know, just I guess it, what was so good about it was I kind of was performing in shows, but they were really encouraging of bringing my other skill set into it. So I ended up essentially discovering what it meant to be a musical director. I didn't really know what this was um, at this time. And you know, through seeing musicals and understanding it, I, I realized that, oh, I can use my piano, I can use my love of singing and performing to work with singers every day. And I, I kind of realized that that's what I wanted to do. Um, yeah, and, and it went from there. Yeah, Underground's a great uh, place for people beginning in Brisbane. What was it? What were you, what were your early show? You did... Um... I did The Bleach Bunny, which would have which was really early. It was 2005. And then I we did our original Helen High Water 2007. Helen High Water, that's what it was. And then I came back and did Spelling Bee in 2014. No, you're in town with you, and then yeah. Spelling Bee. Yeah. There we go. There's the timeline. So let's move on then to you getting on the plane, getting over here. As far <laughs> as finding work for yourself as an MD, I mean, that's a completely new world for me. Do you need an agent? How did you go about that? You know, I, I really wasn't sure because in Brisbane you know I was doing all of my work mainly through the Queensland Conservatorium uh, and you know the theatre companies that I'd worked with so I kind of had my connections already established uh, when I got here I was quite lucky because as I said I had those connections that had already put me in touch they gave me they put me in touch with some of the drama schools um, in London you know obviously musical theatre training is a massive industry and the difference with Australia versus UK. Most of the classes taught in London drama schools are done by West End 
professionals. So it's like you're literally working with the top people in your industry. So there's so much work for MDs and singing teachers and vocal coaches and rep coaches and acting through song and performance classes. So I just was lucky to get in with a few drama schools that were looking for, you know, some pianists, accompanists, and I got into that immediately. So I was really lucky. Um, I, I worked for um, Associated Studios, Arts Ed and Erdang Academy. And that was, I think, sept- October. I arrived in September, October. I already had work. So I was so lucky. Um, and then it just went from there, really. Yeah. Well, where did it go from there? Because I know uh, you've gotten to do a couple of big tours while you've been over here. But what happened first? What was that <laughs> first big break into the theatre scene for you over here? Um, some of my, I'll, I'll tell you some of my exciting memories that weren't really part of the break, but a few things that stand out for me, which I want to share. Um, I remember getting my first class at Associated Studios and it was a performance class with a, a singer called Rosemary Ash. And I didn't know who she was really. I didn't know the name, but then when she told me, like she, she introduced herself to the class and she told us some of the credits that she'd done. And she was the original Carlotta in Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. And this is my first class. And, you know, I listened to that album over and over and over. So I'd listened to her growing up, you know, and it was so amazing. I was like, oh, my God. So that's that's what I mean about when you do classes in London, you're literally working with the top people. So that was amazing. And then later that year, Associated Studios was doing a Christmas concert um, and they wanted me to MD it. And because Paul Sabe always does these amazing ones in um, Brisbane, you know, part of his course, I was like, yeah, I've got a good idea about what I want to do. Take some inspiration. Um, And it was really cool because it was at the St. Paul's Church in Covent Garden, which is uh, named the Actors Church because they've got a really good... it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And... (laughs) I ended up singing Christmas carols next to the actor Jeremy Irons. We were sharing um, a a lyric sheet because he's a patron of um, Associated Studios and he was there. So, you know, the guy that voiced Scar and Lion King and all his other roles, we're singing carols. So they were my two um, really exciting kind of celeb encounters when I first got there. And And St. Paul's is is such a inspiring place to work I've only had the um, pleasure of doing an audition there once (laughs) and was just uh, in awe of all the plaques that line the walls with actors names and the outdoor theater space they have there too is amazing oh what a cool what a cool venue to get to cut your teeth at in the early days (laughs) it just kind of I think arriving in London meeting these people and understanding wow it's so far removed from Brisbane Australia like you're here in London working with the people that whose work you have admired for decades you know it's so inspiring so I guess my first big break came in I'd say 2000 it was 2017 I'd um about a year and a half after arriving in London I'd done um a third year musical at Erdang Academy Drowsy Chaperone and one of the um I'd I'd made friends with a, a guy called Will Joy who was also working there and I remember I had been asked to be a dep for Wonderland the tour um the Frank Wildhorn show and if you guys don't know what a dep is it's basically basically when someone comes in to play one of the chairs in the band. So for me, it was the Keys 2 book because the the regular player might be off sick or doing something. So they bring in someone else to come play. So you basically learn the show and you you you, you put yourself forward for that show. So I went and did Wonderland and, um, you know, I randomly posted on Facebook about being in Southend on Sea or wherever I was doing Wonderland depping. And I'm not very active on social media so it must have been um, serendipitous that I did this but anyway my friend Will Joy had seen the post and then he messaged me immediately saying oh you're depping on Wonderland we're actually looking for a Keys 2 player for the Evita tour which is starting in like three months or four months UK Europe and he was the assistant MD on the show so yeah he basically brought me in for that role and um, from there I got that tour and I remember April of 2017 I was in Munich opening a a Vita for my first major tour. How how did that feel for you? I mean that's a big step up from depping that project to taking on that role. Were you nervous? Were you yeah I was I was really anything? I was really nervous because um I haven't done those types of chairs before like I'm a pianist through and through but these ones are very finicky where you play like 20 instruments on the keyboard and you have to change sounds and 
and it's it, it was a lot of pressure because um you know the t the show had already been open from about february and they'd done a lot of uk locations and i was taking over the keys to chair in europe so i basically had to jump into a band in the show that was already rehearsed so i had to learn the show while it was p performing and i would go to performances and i remember having to play my first show and i was a wreck my my foot wouldn't stop shaking and i was so nervous because obviously i put so much expectation and pressure on myself to be perfect and you know i did a pretty good job but um yeah, wow. I, I still get nervous thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet you do. And I think there's that extra pressure that you put on yourself when you're in a new country and these big opportunities arise and you feel like you're getting your chance to yeah. pitch yourself and sell yourself at your absolute best to these brand new people. You're not in your early 20s anymore. You no. don't have that as an excuse. You've got this CV that tells the world that, you know, you <laughs> you have the skills that you say you do. And uh, it, yeah, it's intimidating and um, it, no easy feat taking that first that first big job, I imagine. Yeah, so that was the first one for me um, and it was amazing. Like, uh, it wasn't a long tour, which was good. It was about four months, which suits me because I don't love the idea of touring, like being in a different location every week. I, I kind of liked my routine at home and to, to work from London. But obviously, when you're starting out, you take the opportunities. Touring's a massive thing here and they're very... Um, well-respected and very um, good quality. And a lot of the tours either transfer into the West End or they start in the West End and go out on tours. So you really need to um, get into them if you want to um, excel here. How did, how did your teaching work work around that? Were they supportive of you being able to drop in and out when you needed to for contact? Yeah. Um, London is very, uh, I think teaching in London is very aware that you because you're um, hiring creatives like people that are actually industry professionals they usually will hire you on a casual basis so i usually will be hired at on a term you know wherever i want to work and they're very open to the idea of getting cover teachers into to um, if you need to go and, and work so that's really good actually the good thing about tour life is usually you know you um you play Tuesday to Saturday and then you're off Sunday, Monday. So I would always come back when it was close in London um, to home. So I was usually home every week anyway, you know, for a few days. Amazing. So after Evita then, what, what came next? Well, while we were on tour for Evita, we heard that it was going to transfer into the West End, which is basically what you want for any show that you're on, you know, getting in the London West End, that's the goal. And I was really kind of excited because I was like, oh, yay, I'm going to get to do my first West End show. And unfortunately, I got told that I was not going to be going to the West End. They were bringing in the original Keys 2 player to do that gig. And rightly so, he, um, he, it was his role first. Yes, so I was, even though I was devastated not to get my West End debut, I did get offered an assistant MD role on another one of their tours. So that was the main thing for me because at this point I'd played Keys 2, but it was just a musician's chair. I really wanted to start getting work as an assistant MD, hopefully moving towards MD. So they offered me um, a short tour on Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dreamcoat, which was cool because, you know, it's, again, I'd just come off of Vita, so they offered me seven weeks on Joseph, which was amazing because I got to get my first assistant MD credit um, for my CV, so that was really great. And in all, in total, I'd only had to do like about six months of touring, so... <laughs> with both shows so that was really cool what's the biggest difference between an assistant md and being in the head md job so basically the itself? md um puts together the music aspect of the show and they're in charge of everything and then the assistant basically is their right hand man so we will rehearse we will try to uh, we'll rehearse the singers we'll rehearse the band whatever they need to help the vision come to life uh the main thing is usually the md won't conduct eight shows a week so they might do seven or they might do six and then we will have to step up and conduct the show for them when they're off so it's a hard role because you have to learn your own chair in the band so usually the assistant md will play a keys two chair or piano but then we also have to learn the conductor's uh, role as well so it, it's very stressful but uh that's that's the route <laughs> to the top yeah and and a big step up from the keys to role yeah and um so that was that's a nice climbing of the ladder there especially because i had come over to be an md like i'd already been doing stuff in brisbane that was my main goal so it was a really nice climb and you know, in retrospect, a much better progression than taking the keys to chair in the West End. That would have done nothing for me, whereas this actually put me in the right direction. So it's interesting looking back how you can go, things work out the right way. <laughs> 
yeah, even when you feel like the world's going to end and you've just missed out exactly. an opportunity that was everything you were hoping yeah. for. You never know what's around the corner. You don't. And speaking of which, I mean, my next major gig, which was, again, very random and serendipitous, was, um, you know, working on the show Barnum, the musical, which um, most people will know it. it's based on, well, The Greatest Showman, that musical that came out with Hugh Jackman, is based on the original Cy Coleman musical Barnum. So when I was finished Joseph tour, I didn't have any um, any any really idea of where I was going to head in terms of work. Like I, I had some teaching and stuff. But I remember this, I randomly saw a post on uh, Facebook from a guy, actually, the MD of Wonderland, so going back all the way to there, had posted on Facebook saying, I'm doing a show called Adrian Mole at the Menier Chocolate Factory, which is a, a, a top West, off West End theatre, like one of the best in the world. Like, you know, they've had shows that they've done that have transferred to Broadway, famously Little Night Music, which was their show in London, which ended up being um, the one that Catherine Zeta-Jones and Angela Lansbury did in Broadway. So that's the level of work that they do. So my friend Alex had posted saying, I need a rehearsal pianist for a day of, of, of this show is anyone available? And I was like, oh, it sounds really boring. I don't want to go in and have to like sight read some show. But then I was like, you know what? You're not doing anything. Just respond and go do it. Get over yourself. So I did. And I went and played. And um, I thought I would be playing like, you know, maybe just coaching some of the songs. But when I got there, they were like, okay, so you're here and we're going to do a full run of the show. So we're going to start from the top. And I was like, I don't know this show. It's a completely original musical. I've never heard any of it. I've never seen the score. So I literally had to sight read it and it wasn't easy. It was quite difficult. And I had to sight read that from the top for a run. And they were like, don't worry, we'll talk you through it. And I was like, okay, as long as you know. So that was stressful. But again, I was like, rise to the occasion, you know. And then apparently- And uh, also that, you know, it, it's obvious there that your reputation has preceded you. Seriously, but I mean, the thing was, then I got a I got a message from Alex Parker, who was the MD on that show. And he said, look, I heard that, you were brilliant in that rehearsal and everyone was raving about you. And I'm actually looking for an assistant MD for Barnum at the Menia Chocolate Factory. Can we talk about it? So we did and we did and I agreed to do it. And, you know, that again, an amazing opportunity that came about for me just taking this random thing. Um, you know, that was a crucial moment for me in my trajectory because it got me involved with the many a chocolate factory. Mm, and I like you use the phrase, get over yourself, <laughs> which I think is something that you have to regularly do when you are in a new country and you are starting from scratch. Exactly. You just have to take those gigs and say yes to things exactly. and not be too picky. I mean, unless it's hindering a path that you're on, otherwise you never know where those little opportunities are going to lead exactly. you, especially in somewhere like that. It's something I've really had to like, just keep reminding myself, just, you know, you never know what's around the corner um, and take the opportunities, put yourself out there. Nothing's going to happen by sitting at home. It's a small world thing because actually when I, when I got to London, I messaged you. I, uh, you'd, the reason you'd come on my radar is because I was walking past the chocolate factory every day uh, on my way to Southwark down at the Union Theatre where I was doing a tiny little profit share thing. But I, it was a really cool small world moment when I was getting to walk the streets of London and see your name on like a little <laughs> uh, poster thing that was out the front every day. It is a gorgeous venue. That. Oh, it's an amazing venue. They do wonderful stuff there. And I was lucky enough to um, do another major show there and another sh I actually did three more shows with the Menia Chocolate Factory. So once I'd made that initial connection, it was literally my stepping stone to uh, bigger things in London. So it was amazing. There's a really gorgeous fringe scene in London that I had no real idea about until I got to be here and working in. There's, there's so many on-the-cuff on theatres that are doing incredible work. And as you say, providing a platform for shows that are then going on and taking residency in theatres on the West End. Yeah, or Broadway. <laughs> it's yeah, incredible, yeah, isn't it? Least. Yeah. Yeah. So you stuck around at the Chocolate Factory a while. Yeah, I did. So I did Barnum. And then, um, you know, from that, I actually got my neck, my, my West End debut um, in a show called Ruthless the Musical, which um, is an amazing, quirky musical that I've never heard of. But it's probably the funniest dark comedy I've ever played in my life. And I was the assistant musical director on that show with a musical director called Gareth Valentine, who is an absolute 
legend in the musical theater world like original md on chicago kiss of the spider woman like he is the person that you need to meet if you want to progress your career so i remember having to audition you know in my role in my job i don't usually audition because it's usually network based they say you know i know someone they can do it it's based on your cv but because they didn't know who I was and Ruthless was a, a brutal score to play. It was so difficult. I remember having to come in and meet him and he just gave me the keys two chair and he played the keys one and we had two pianos side by side and he was like, let's just sight read. And I was like, okay. Uh, and I did and um, got the job and it was in the arts theatre in the West End. Kind of a little caveat about that because it's such a small theatre. It's the smallest theatre in the West End. Some people are like, oh, it's not a real West End debut. Um, but I was like, damn it, I'm going to claim it. It's on the West End. You know, six of the musicals been running there for years. You know, it's 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 the home of it. Yeah, it's, it's a great little thing. It's on the West End. It's definitely on the West End. <laughs> So that was great. Um, and I made, I think the most important thing was I, I cemented my relationship with the Menier and I made a really good uh, professional relationship with Gareth Ballantyne, um, who actually went on to hire me in more shows. Wonderful. And whilst doing these bigger jobs, I, I also noticed that you were keeping yourself quite busy with a lot of cabaret work and small scale stuff as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So, you know, working on a show, um, it's an absolute privilege. But when you play the same show eight times a week, it's not creatively fulfilling. You go, you do the job, you, you know, you do that, you do your best job and you be a musician and everything. But there's nothing really creative about it. So I was lucky to have a, a, a friend called Rosie um, Williamson. And, you know, we had talked about doing a cabaret. In fact, she'd already been doing her, her cabaret called What Would Julie Do? Which is using Julie Andrews and the idea of show tunes for self-help. Amazing. And I, I remember <laughs> I did the original one with her in 2016 or something. And then I went away on tour and shows. So I, I wasn't around. And then in 2018, I had some time and I was like, you know what, let's do it. Let I wanted to be creative. I wanted to arrange songs. And, you know, so we, we got together and we really put together a new kind of version of the show that was very based on being creative with arrangements and mashups and, and taking these legit songs or, or, and, and really or, or contemporary um, pop songs, you know, and turning them into legit kind of style singing, classical. It was, so it was very fun. So we ended up doing um, three or four different shows at the Pheasantry, which is a really cool venue in um, in London. And we just made it a regular thing. And we it was, it was my outlet to be creative. How did you approach the Pheasantry? Did you have any relationship with them beforehand? Or was that all her doing? That was all her doing. So I was really happy with this arrangement because she was producing it all. And I was just coming in to be creative and, um, and be the, uh, like the MD on it. So it worked perfectly for me. Nice little side project then that is not necessarily consuming all of your exactly. brain power. And it would feel good yeah. to be able to like, you know, exp be creative and artistic. Um, yeah. And remember and remind myself that that is another facet of what I love to do. And fostering other relationships exactly. as well. You never know when those jobs from those little cabarets are going to go well, somewhere else. Well, I got a big job from one of those cabarets. Let's talk about that then. Um, so we we moved from the pheasantry and we did a we did a gig at Piano Works, which is a in um, it's a really cool um, cabaret bar in the West End, just um, behind Book of Mormon. And I remember meeting um, the the guy, I guess the manager of the venue who'd booked us. And he's he also works as a director. And we were just chatting and he was saying, you know, in 2020, um, I'm doing a concert version of The Pirate Queen, which is a Bubble and Schoenberg show. Obviously, they did Les Mis and Miss Saigon at the London Coliseum, which is a massive theatre in the West End. And I jokingly said, oh, well, if you need an assistant MD, just let me know. You know, I just... <laughs> as you do, yeah. Just, I'll just anyway, leave that there for as you. as <laughs> you do. I did. I just was like, okay, fine. Because I heard that my friend Max Reynolds, who um, was, was going to be the assistant director, and I said, okay, I know Max, we get on really well. If you need an assistant MD, you know, put my name forward. I'd love to be considered. A few months later, I got a message saying, oh, if you're still interested, we're looking for an assistant MD. I literally didn't think that that would ever amount to anything, but it did. And um, I ended up being, yeah, the assistant MD on that project, which was last year. And it was my last show that I did before um, pandemic hit. And I got to uh, meet, well, Michelle Schomburg was literally in the rehearsal room with me during all the rehearsals, sitting next to me while I was playing his music. <laughs> No pressure. So it was like, again, 
no pressure. I mean, so much pressure, but just being absolutely awestruck and being like, I'm, I'm working with these people that wrote Les Mis, like, and it's like, oh, like, it's just. Did you get much time to hang out with them on a personal level? outside of the workspace not really but he was very generous with his time like he would always chat to you in the rehearsal space and when we finished you know he gave me a hug goodbye and said really well done and he got and he let us get a photo with him you know just so he was really generous and lovely incredible uh let's let's jump back a little bit we 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 fast forwarded a tiny bit there i'm sorry we were talking about your cabaret work but also something that i enjoyed seeing you pop up on uh was the audition session stuff that was happening on youtube how did that come about and what was it all for um i mean that was one of the first things that i did in london when i first arrived here i don't even really remember how i got into it um i can't remember how i got the gig but someone was looking for just a pianist to do ryan carter he sets up these great audition sessions where he will you you, singers will come in and he'll actually film it so you basically get a showreel quality video which is really important for um performers in, in london and you know he needed a pianist i came in and did it and you know, we really hit it off. So I did a few of his sessions. And I remember Ben Chambers, who was also a friend from Brisbane and went to the Queensland Con that I'd MD'd in Miss Saigon there, uh, popped up at my first session and was like, oh, great. So, you know, maybe he was the one that gave Ryan my name now that I think about it. That might have been the connection. Ah, I think it was. There you go. Pays to be friendly. Yeah, I mean, it does. (laughs) (laughs) So we talked about Ruthless uh, and then we jumped forward to Pirate Queen. But let's go to that little patch in the middle. I believe you got to do a little bit of work with the Donmar warehouse. Is that correct? Yeah. This patch in the middle was probably my um, most lucrative uh, gigs, I would say. Um, the first thing that I did was Fiddler on the Roof with the Menia Chocolate Factory again. And that was with Trevor Nunn directing, um, who's obviously a legend, you know, original director of Les Mis, like legend in the business. And um the musical director was an American guy called Paul Bogave, who who was coming out to do it. And he, also a legend. So he was the musical director on the films Chicago, Dreamgirls. You know, I've watched Chicago four times at the cinema. I was obsessed with that version. Shanae, uh, Renee Zellweger and Captain Z- it was one. I still consider it one of my favorite movie musicals. He did the original Sunset Boulevard with Glenn Close, which I, I've listened to a hundred times, you know. So the fact that he was the MD on this show, I, it was amazing. And, you know, Fiddler was such an amazing opportunity because I also met one of my idols, Judy Kuhn, who, if you don't know, was the singing voice of Pocahontas, Disney's Pocahontas. And I remember getting told that I had booked Fiddler. It was very last minute. I didn't know I was going to get it. And I remember getting the call. And then one of my other friends was just standing with me and he was like, oh, you know, Judy Kuhn's doing that. And I was like, what? I I didn't even know. And, you know, people know her from Pocahontas, but I know her from listening to the original Les Mis. She was the original Cosette. She was the original um, Betty Schaefer in Sunset. She was the original Florence in Chess. I'd listened to her and she was an idol. So the fact that I was going to be working with Judy Kuhn in London was just incredible. And was she there on your first day? Yeah. What was your first day like walking into yeah. that job? It was walking around and just chatting to everyone. And then we got into a big circle and, you know, everyone announced who they were. And it was really amazing. And I think, you know, a lot of the cast were young people as well, just working on first big shows for the first time. And we were all so awestruck. And again, she was lovely and generous. And it was really nice to get to know her and work with her. Do you know what? I love that about this industry and in getting to work in more off West End, you know, fringy theatres, the process is always the same. It's the same as when it, it's, it's exactly the same as how it was way back when, when we were doing like student pro at like, you yeah. get in the room with good people. There's generally a circle of some oh, exactly. sort that first day, you know, it, it scales in professionalism as far as the material you're working with and perhaps the organization, but it's just, it, it's it, the same. Don't change. They don't. And as long as the people are nice and, and, you know, humble and it doesn't matter. Like, you know, we have Trevor Nunn, Paul Bogov and Judy Kuhn in the room and it's like, it, they're just, we're there to do the work and, and just get on, you know, it's great. That's what I love about professional just maybe, work. Just wearing slightly better clothing, slightly better shoes, earning a bit more money. I mean, can I tell you, Trevor Nunn would wear the same things every day, like old denim trainers and a plaid shirt. 
even though he's oh, I love that. You, you wouldn't even know that <laughs> how much money he would have i mean how to how to make yourself approachable to a cast seriously yeah being on their level it's so important to be human in those in those senior roles or in those directorial roles like what you pursue it's it's so important i think to even push yourself to be the most human the most approachable guard down person in the room exactly. for the sake of your actors and your performers there's no need to have ego or be grand because we're all hired to do the job you know it's based on skill set you can all do it that's why you're here we don't need to figure out who's the best it, and that's what i love about professional work i mean i'm lucky i've had good shows i know some other cast can be a bit difficult because there's always people you know in any industry isn't there yeah so, so uh, what was the journey with fiddler there from starting at the chocolate factory how long did it run so it ran at the chocolate factory um for about three months. The difference with this show for me was that there wasn't a key, a second keys chair on the show. So I was there for the rehearsal process, but once it opened, I wasn't required for the show anymore. So I was on call as the associate musical director. If the conductor had to go off, I would go on to conduct the show, but I never played it. So once it opened, I, I essentially wasn't really a part of that show anymore, um, which led me to be a, available for working at the Donmar Warehouse, which is another, I mean, if you think about the fringe venues, off West End venues that you want to work on in, in London, it's Donmar Warehouse and many a chocolate factory. Like they are the most incredible venues. So Gareth Valentine, who I'd done Sweet Charity with, was looking for an assistant for Sweet Charity, uh, who I'd done Ruthless uh -huh. with, sorry, was looking for an assistant, was looking for a, um, an assistant MD for Sweet Charity. So I got to uh, work on that at the Donmar. And then the funny thing was Fiddler got told that it was transferring to the West End. So the difference with the West End contract was they were guaranteeing me one conduct a week. So I would conduct the show in the West End once a week. So that was my debut conduct, MD conduct in the West End. And because it was one show a week, I actually was able to do Sweet Charity at the same time, which I, I was playing. And it was just about 15 minutes down the road. So I would do eight shows of Sweet Charity. And then one of those shows, one of those nights a week, I was always con also conducting Fiddler. So it was... a <laughs> A nine show week, but God, living the dream, right? Living the absolute dream. Oh, you say 15 minutes down the road, was that a bus or a walk? Where is the Donmar in a relationship? A walk. Oh, literally. Donmar, Donmar's in uh, Seven Dials, right, um, by Matilda. Oh. And uh, Fiddler was in the Playhouse just by Embankment. So it was like, <laughs> and my friend, my uh, the musicians in the cast would joke. They'd be like, oh, going from your one West End show to your other West End show. And I was like... God, I'm so lucky. Wow. And yeah, you soak up that while it lasts. I tell you what, that is, that's a yeah, bit seriously. of a surreal experience. Because the Donmar show, the Sweet Charity at the Donmar had a heap of hype around it. I know the tickets for that were sold out months and months. It was, it was disappointing because it, because I wanted people to come see it, but it did sell out so quickly because of the hype, you know, it reviewed really well. Um, and Gareth Valentine, you know, did new arrangements and things. So it was very exciting. Um, very exciting show to be part of how long did that last the juggling the two gigs a few months actually um maybe two months or so so it wasn't a super long time unfortunately um fiddler had to close after in, in november it was only on the west end for about seven or eight months because they'd already had another booking um in the venue that they had to honor and actually it was chris fung who you would have spoken to last week it was his show yeah um, serrano <laughs> that oh, was coming into the playhouse serrano so he uh so he so he replaced <laughs> me uh, <laughs> and then we spoke about how pirate queen was your more recent work since then what was the transition yeah. between fiddler and pirate queen like was there was there, has has there been any downtime actually between any of these last four gigs or have you just had the serendipity of going from one gig to the next? I mean, I've been so lucky to literally go from show to show to show to show, which is the dream. But the, I mean, one of the big problems is that like it's so because obviously I, I miss my family desperately. It's so hard to go home when you're working constantly. I mean, first world problems, you know. But you know, it got to the point at the end of that year where I was like. I am going home to Australia and I don't care about work. It was the first time that I got myself to that place because, you know, as performers, we're so aware of trying to book the next show. That becomes almost the, the obsession. Where am I working next? How am I going to work? I need to book the show. So this time I was like, you know what? I'm going home to Australia. 
and I told all the people that maybe might have been interested in working with me. And I just said, I've got five weeks and I'm taking it and I'm not available. <laughs> so I was lucky. That was the end of 2019. And um, I went home to Australia and then Pirate Queen was started about the 26th of January. So mm. it was literally, it was perfect. It couldn't have timed out better. How was the, how was the trip home after having been away for so long? It's so nice to go home to Australia. I love it. I could I could live there for the lifestyle. <laughs> um, the weather. <laughs> but, you know, the weather, seriously. It's a dream. Yeah. Do you reckon you'll... Uh, I mean, it's lucky that you got that trip home squeezed in before no, the seriously. world took the turn that it did. With yep. having been working on Pirate Queen, how did COVID affect you you know we've closed we finished pirate queen on the 23rd of feb and i think it was the 13th of march or something that that we went into lockdown so it literally just worked out wow so it didn't cut your project short at all that's uh, i think you're probably the first performer no. the first creative i've spoken to that didn't actually get interrupted oh, i mean so many of my friends i know got absolutely screwed over um and it was so sad and you know being a performer and then suddenly having no work or income I was lucky that I've always kept my 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 you know my I don't know what the expression is but I've always kept touch with the drama schools to make sure that I'm always available for work so I was lucky as soon as you know this happened I was offered teaching work online so this whole pandemic I've, I've been lucky that I've had that regular income I was going to say um you asked earlier on you know how I get work and as an MD and whether it's through networking or agent um and that's an interesting thing because I never really considered getting an agent but since I've been in London like most of the top creatives actually do have agents um and I think it's it helps it helps them negotiate contracts just the same as performers um so something that I've I haven't gotten one yet because I've been so successful sourcing my own work and but it's something that I've considered because I'm I'm aware that the work that I'm getting is from a very small pool of creatives in London. It's basically the Mania Chocolate Factory and Gareth Valentine, which are amazing connections to have. But it makes me think that if I didn't have those, how do I branch out into 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 working with more producers and directors and maybe getting an agent would be a way to do that. So I've I've, I've thought about it. As you say, an agent an agent would just give you a different way of approaching things. Is it something you're considering post-COVID yeah. as, as work starts to come back around? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's hard. We're all in, the, in this weird position now where I feel like I've lost all my momentum because I haven't worked for over a year. And then I just have to remind myself that no one's worked. We're all in the same boat. It's not like I'm missing out and just not getting work. No one is working. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how things come back how have you managed yourself over covid with the lack of work and the excess of free time has anything creative or helpful come out of it work-wise not much to be honest it's been mostly online teaching you know we haven't wanted to work on our cabaret because we don't want to work towards things when we don't know if there's we can even book gigs in so that hasn't happened but me and kieran who's my housemate he's a writer we wrote a show a new musical Mm, intriguing so that was really exciting and very creatively Uh, once I started writing I was like oh my god why didn't I do this like last year (laughs) wasted a year of creativity (laughs) but sometimes you have to go through a little bit of boredom to uh inspire yourself to start using those creative juices again what's uh I mean in a dream world if you could get that up and running where would you approach to start that process you know it's one it's one of the things i really am not quite sure about um i know kieran originally uh, we were always thinking about maybe taking it to edinburgh fringe festival for instance you know which could be really exciting i've always wanted to go to the fringe and do a show um expensive though so it's like where do you you know when you start creating your own work it's like who produces it who puts the money into the work um the good thing about the cabarets that we do is that there's it's very low cost and we make money from the audience so it's guaranteed to break even or we usually make money whereas when you have to produce something uh, new work on your own it's it's hard you've just got to get you've got to find producers I guess that are interested in it or find some big name stars that are willing to do some demos or workshops for you Uh, the good thing about London is at least you're already you know immersed in this thriving hub of new musicals and 
and work so it's good yeah and as you mentioned the edinburgh festival's not for the faint-hearted i uh, i'm hoping to have a guest on here actually within this first series who will talk about her experience with bringing a show over from brisbane to edinburgh uh, so maybe we can learn well, a few things from I'm that. I'm so keen. I'll be listening to that one intently. <laughs> and then we'll have to do a follow-up when you get to take your show. <laughs> oh, well, Matt, thank you so much. It's just been incredible to hear all of the little details about your journey. For our listeners at home, do you have any final little pearls of wisdom you can share for <laughs> anyone who's thinking about pursuing musical direction in particular or... Uh, just uprooting themselves and moving over here to the UK? I mean, in terms of moving over to the UK, the thing I'll say is there is so much work and opportunity here, especially from Australia. You can't even imagine the, the amount of shows that come through the West End and the tours and then all the fringe. There's so much opportunity. If it's something that you want to do, um, I would say go for it. It's only been a positive experience for me. In terms of um, young MDs and people that want to pursue that career, um, the main thing is get your piano skills up because these days mu musicals usually have um, a piano MD and piano skills are so important. And obviously learning how to work with singers and understanding the voice, um, that's that would be my biggest uh, suggestion. And you've already mentioned them a couple of times, uh, your housemates, Kieran and Jackie, but I... Uh... Well, I'm going to use this podcast now as a chance to nominate them. We're going to get them on the show as well, I think. I think you definitely should get them on here. <laughs> to hear a slightly different view of moving to London and pursuing cabaret work and also, as you said, the writing work that Kieran's been doing. That'd be interesting to talk about. Exactly. Everyone's, uh, it's, it's a bit cliched, but everyone's journey is so unique and different. Um, and that's what makes it so exciting to hear everyone's experiences. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing yours today, Matt. It's been the absolute highlight of my day. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And I can't wait. Um, mm. So back, I was going to say back to lockdown uh, life. Go tune into Boris, shall we? <laughs> I can't wait to finally catch up with you in, in person when we can. I can't wait. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Thanks, mate. And that brings us to the end, folks. There's no doubt that Matt has been doing very well career-wise since making the move from Brisbane to London. His story really is proof of how establishing your skills and gathering work experience as a creative on your home turf will put you in good stead for when searching for work abroad. I know the Brisbane scene has lost a real gem of a musical director since Matt brought his talents over here to the UK, but you never know, maybe the weather will be enough to send him back again one day. Regardless, I'm sure we'll see his name against something big here in London again soon. But I'm signing off. If you enjoyed today's episode or any of my previous interviews, please help me to spread the word. Shout about it on your socials. And why not link your favourite episode to someone else who might enjoy them? It's a great way to start a chat with somebody about something creative and thought-provoking. And in the meantime, come follow me on Instagram at the.pursuitpod and subscribe to the show on your favourite podcasting app so that you never miss an ep. I've had a great time sharing this story with you folks. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>